0: Dear Father, we thank you so much for your trustworthy word. Uh, We thank you that in a world where we are faced with untruths, we have the truth that we can depend on. Uh, We have your uh, firm counsel, which we can rely upon uh, for everything necessary for life and godliness. Uh, We do praise you for this Old Testament account, your beginnings of your dealing with Abraham and the children of Israel, Uh, We thank you that you have carved them out from the nations and prepared them uh, as a nation above all the others so that you can rule over this earth from the throne of Israel. Uh, We do long for that time and we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. This is kind of a part two from last week, which we really ran out of time to finish. We got about 50 minutes in, and we were only three or four verses in. Uh, so, Lord willing, this time we will finish it. Uh, but our main point is still going to remember remain the same uh, because we're looking at these two chunks of our passages together. So we want to remember that God takes the opportunity of this timely judgment upon Sodom uh, to instruct Abraham concerning righteousness righteousness justice, and mercy. Abraham, as the seminal head of a new nation, Israel, was given an example of extreme national judgment, made possible by the perforation of those nations at Babel. God will exterminate nations which oppose him on earth. Abraham takes the opportunity to learn about God's character and to test the doctrine of a faithful remnant. So as we dig into the passage, we want to remember the context uh, that this has just come after. Uh, first, God has appeared to Abraham and Sarah to promise them about the, new, uh, the seed who is going to be born, not just through Abraham's seed, but through the body of Sarah. There is no confusion now, the two parents of this child and the purpose of this child in God's program is to build out of this child, the nation through which the Messiah will come and over which the Messiah will rule. And then this nation, as it rules over the nations of the earth in the millennial kingdom, God will finally have his king, who is a man who rules over all of creation on God's behalf, vindicating his purposes in creation. This has to happen before creation passes away, Otherwise, Satan was victorious in thwarting God's purpose for glory in this world. This will happen, this will occur, and this is the beginning of God's program to bring it about. We see that in Abraham, and so God is going to be faithful to Abraham to bring about his promises because this is how God has planned to bring maximum glory to himself, and he will not fail any of these uh, plans. And then we looked into Genesis 18:16. after he finishes this meal with Abraham, where he confirms that Sarah will be the mother of Isaac. And he begins to teach him about how God deals with nations. Abraham has learned a lot in the last six chapters about how God deals with individuals. And that's not going to leave the context. We're still going to deal with individuals, but now he's expanding to dealing with the nation because God is about to birth the nation of Israel through Isaac. So he begins and it says, then the men rose up from there, from their meal, and they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And this is his reason why he would not hide from Abraham, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. And in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him, and this is chosen for a specific purpose, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. These are two of the issues that God has to deal with in Sodom. And he is going to teach Abraham about his righteousness, which demands justice and how justice is doled out to these nations. But we will also see mercy come into the picture so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So the Lord said the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. This is why he has to bring judgment. So he says, I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. His purpose in going down to Sodom is going to be to bring judgment, to first assess the situation, to ensure that the accusation is accurate, and then he will bring that judgment. At the end of this passage in verse 33, we see him depart from Abraham and go down towards Sodom in judgment. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. When it comes to the destruction of Sodom, which will occupy most of the chapter, uh, the next chapter, chapter 19, at the end of it, once God has destroyed Sodom but rescued Lot, God is going to say that he remembered Abraham in his judgment on Sodom and in the rescue of Lot, rather than saying that he remembered lot. Uh, That is important because this is all for the instruction of Abraham. And Moses is recording it here because they have a very similar purpose in re-entering the promised land. They have been told to eradicate the nations in that land. So just like God judged Sodom, he is going to give to his children the responsibility to judge the nations by eradicating them when they enter into the land. God often does this with his people. This is The purpose of being chosen is that we might replicate God's activity on earth. When he first planted Adam in the garden, he told him to replicate his own activity of cultivating nature and producing life. Adam did this. This was part of the image of God. This is why we were made in the image of God, to reflect him. And so God here is teaching Abraham how to reflect his own righteousness, his own justice, and his own mercy. And so God is going to go down in judgment towards Sodom, but before he even speaks with Abraham about this uh, long intercession that Abraham gives on the behalf of Sodom, before that ever occurs, he sends two agents to rescue Lot. So before Abraham ever pleads Lot's case, God has already sent salvation to them. Then the men, these two angels, turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. This is before the Lord departed, and this is not indicating that they departed on the Lord's behalf to bring judgment to Sodom. They went for a different purpose that did not involve judgment. They went for salvation. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom, and when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. They arrived there while God is still speaking with Abraham. This whole discourse between God and Abraham, we might think of it, and rightly so, as a great passage on intercession. But if you notice in the entire passage here, Abraham never pleads Sodom's case. Abraham never pleads Lot's case. At every moment, Abraham pleads God's case. He correlates everything to God's own integrity, to God's own righteousness, to God's own character. And he does not at any point ask God to do something that is against God's will. He is not asking God to change his mind. He is learning from God by probing first or prodding God's character. He is going to learn about who God is by witnessing this judgment. He's been given access to God's mind now. God has brought him in by sharing with him his plans to judge Sodom. And Abraham takes the opportunity, as he should, to inquire about God, about what he's doing here. Abraham came near and he said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? You see, Abraham knows that there are righteous people, positionally speaking, in Sodom. He knows that his nephew Lot is there. He knows that his nephew Lot is a believer. Surely he also knows that his nephew Lot has slipped along the way, that he is living in Sodom and perhaps even enjoying his time there. We see him in a place of leadership when we get to him in the next passage, sitting by the gate of the city. And so here, notice, Abraham does not say, God, I know all of Sodom is wicked, but Lot is righteous. Save Lot and destroy the city. Rather, he asks God, is this how you judge? Is this what you are doing? Are you sweeping away the righteous also with the wicked? Now, Abraham here is speaking of temporal judgment, judgment in time, not judgment in eternity. Surely, Abraham is not questioning whether or not God is taking away Lot's salvation. That's nowhere in the context. But Lot, who is living in this wicked and awful city that is about to be killed physically, asks, are you going to kill the righteous one who is living in such swallow? God would be perfectly righteous and just to do so. God could, and as we'll look at some passages in the New Testament, where God may even wipe away the righteous who are continuing to live as if they are wicked. But here, God is not going to. However, if we look back into God's previous judgments, we can see that God has a means of rescuing the righteous. He always offers grace before he brings judgment. There is never a time in which the Lord judges where he does not offer a means of escaping that judgment. However, that means of escaping judgment has a point of termination. He never allows it to go on into or beyond the point of judgment. There is a point at which grace ends and judgment begins. We saw this with the flood in Genesis 6. God assesses the world. He comes down to judge it just as he is going to come down and judge Sodom. Says then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. From man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. However, we have a turn in the narrative here. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the first time grace is ever mentioned in scripture. Favor is the Hebrew word hen, which everywhere else or most other places is translated grace. Abraham found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. Remember, this was the command that God gave to Abraham to walk before him and be blameless. We see Abraham as an upstanding, righteous man, not only positionally so by faith in the one true God, but blameless as well, walking as he should, walking in fellowship with God. And so he is prepared to obey God because he knows God and he obeys God, that when God gives him this command to build an ark and to get in it, he's obedient. He does so because he knows God. He knows he can trust God. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. God has this means of rescuing the righteous. However, Noah had to be obedient to get on that ark. Noah and his family were obedient to get on the ark. Now, God didn't tell him, I will save your eternal soul if you get on the ark. He is saving his physical life. If he gets on the ark, he and his entire family, his positional salvation, his trust in the Lord for his eternal soul has led to trust in the Lord for his temporal life as well. So if he's putting his, hand, his life, his eternal soul in the hands of this God, why else would he not put his physical life in the hands of this God as well? And he does so. Lot, or not Lot, uh, Noah and his entire family are rescued in this way. Now, Peter uses this as an example. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says, For God did not spare angels when they sinned. The entire host of angels was created at one time. They don't have any parent besides God himself who generated all of them. No angel has an angel father. All angels have God the Father. And so when they sin, there's no opportunity for the next generation to come about and be faithful. Each one is judged immediately. He cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. This is at the end time. In fact, Hebrews will tell us that we will, Ephesians will tell us that we will also judge angels. He did not spare the ancient world. Here is a second example. The ancient world incurred God's judgment, and God did not spare the whole world. But rather, he preserved Noah out of it. He pulled Noah out and saved him. He was a preacher of righteousness. Noah was saved along with seven others. And then he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now we'll see the same thing happening here with Lot. Lot is given the opportunity to be saved physically from this judgment and destruction. Peter continues, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. You see, Lot is righteous because he has put his trust in God. God's righteousness has been imputed to Lot. That means given to him on a basis of grace. Not because he himself is acting righteous, but because the God who has saved him and secured him has made him righteous. He receives God's righteousness as a gift, freely given. But Lot, when we see him, is not reflecting this righteousness. He is not faithful and obedient to God, but rather he's oppressed by the ungodliness he's chosen to live around. And so it would be right and just for God to temporarily punish Lot. Had Lot died in the fires of Sodom, God would not be unjust for doing this. But God is gracious also. God is merciful and he is giving his people the opportunity to change their activity, to separate themselves from this coming judgment so that they might be saved. And along with it comes the offer for anyone else who might choose to trust in God for their physical life And their eternal life. When God goes down by means of these angels to rescue Lot, the opportunity is given for Lot to bring anyone with him that he wants, anyone who will come. And Lot tries a little to get people to come, not very hard, they laugh at him. Lot himself doesn't stand very strong, he hasn't grown in his relationship with God to trust God and to know God's sure judgment as well as his sure salvation. But Lot himself is able to rescue himself by following these angels, by receiving this gift of of grace ahead of judgment. Now explaining how it is possible that Lot is called righteous, Peter says, For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Sadly, this is the case of many who are positionally righteous in the Lord. This is why most of the New Testament was written. Most of the epistles deal with believers in the body of Christ who are not living as their position would dictate. They might be identified with Christ, but they are living like the world. This is Lot in an Old Testament context. He is not part of the body of Christ, but he does have the righteousness of God through faith by means of grace. And because his soul has been made righteous, he is eternally secure in the hands of the father. His soul would long for and crave and need the righteousness of God, but his flesh leads him to continue living in the world as if he is still part of the world. Abraham, who separated himself from Lot and from the nation of Sodom here, was able to grow in God's grace. Lot did not grow. Lot was oppressed by the evil and the wickedness of this world. But then Peter says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. God is able to separate these. God is able to divide for judgment. He is not just going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. However, he's also not going to override our volition. He's not going to override our free will, our choice. We see this here with Lot. Lot is given the option, and thankfully he takes it to flee from Sodom. Later, we'll look at some of these passages this morning. Israel, in the first generation of the diaspora, is given the opportunity to flee from Jerusalem before destruction. Many of them do flee from that destruction. The book of Matthew, the book of Hebrews, and perhaps even the book of James were instrumental in convincing this generation of Israel to flee from the city before the Romans destroyed it. God knows how to rescue the righteous and how to keep the unrighteous under chains for judgment. And remember why he is teaching this to Abraham. Abraham is going to have the responsibility of teaching his own children. He'll teach Isaac. Isaac will teach Jacob. Jacob will teach his 12 children. His 12 children for the next three generations will pass down this information until it gets to Moses. Moses will teach his children. Joshua will teach his children. They'll record this and they'll instruct all the children of Israel to teach this to their children every generation after generation after generation. Why? Because God has a purpose for Israel as a nation. They need to know how to behave as a nation, a nation which is chosen by God for the purpose of bringing about the Messiah. For the purpose of recording God's word and preserving it for mankind. For the purpose of pointing towards salvation when it arrives. The Lord said to or the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? This is a rhetorical question that needs no answer. No, God should not hide this for Abraham, because he has chosen Abraham for a purpose. He has chosen him so that he would instruct his children. Because his children are going to be a light to the world. Israel and the church have very different purposes on this earth. Israel's purpose was to be a light on a hill saying, come and hear about the one true God. The church has a different commission. They are sent out to go out to the corners of the earth and to teach about the one true God. To make disciples. God has chosen Abraham to teach him so that he can teach his children. And the first two lessons he's teaching him are about righteousness and justice. God is going to bring judgment. And the requirement for avoiding this judgment is righteousness. Only God has the righteousness required to avoid this judgment. It has to be received from him. We cannot produce righteousness ourselves to avoid judgment. But God is willing to freely give it so that we might avoid this judgment that is rightly due to us. Lot rightly deserves this judgment. Lot rightly deserves to be wiped off the face of the earth. But God is giving him an opportunity to be preserved. And he receives it. So Abraham continues speaking with God here. He gives him a hypothetical situation. Suppose, or in the case, that there are 50 righteous persons within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? So notice, Abraham is speaking of the place, sparing this place, this land where Sodom is living. God is going to destroy it and so destroy it that it will even mirror and reflect the judgment that he brought on the entire world in Noah's day. Abraham knows that God has to judge the wickedness and the unrighteousness of the persons in this city. He's asking if God is going to bring such an entire destruction that even the 50 righteous would be destroyed from this land, would be swept away from this land. Abraham has a particular concern for the people and for the land because that is his promise. His promise is for the land of Israel and the people who will dwell in it. And he already knows that there will be generations of his children who are not faithful to the Lord. Is God going to destroy the land as well as destroying the generations, destroying the people? Is this how God operates? Is his promise of land under question? Well, no. However, God is going to destroy this land of Sodom. Now, as I pointed out last week, and I've mentioned before, there's two options for what happened to Sodom. One is that it was always beside this great body of water called the Dead Sea, and that it it was a maritime city, but we have no evidence of that in the Old Testament. In fact, when we hear of Sodom, we hear about them being in a valley with no reference to water anywhere around them. But after the destruction, we begin to see this salt sea, this dead sea, this sea that has so many minerals in it that even today it's it's harvested for its minerals. They're able to dry up the water, collect these minerals, and they make all sorts of beauty products and whatnot from it. But is it not possible and even probable that this is the remnants of the destruction of Sodom? That just like God wiped out the earth in Genesis 6 by means of water, He wipes out this entire city by means of a fiery destruction, but now they are covered over by water. See, the Dead Sea is a very unique and interesting body of water in that it has no outlet. It has nowhere for the water to go because it's one big hole. It wasn't carved out by a river running through it. There is a river that runs into it now, the Jordan, and the Jordan used to go all the way through. But this hole is dug so deep right there that the water just collected and collected and collected and probably buried the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Zeboim and Admah, which were destroyed by God. He destroys them with sulfur, one of the contents here left in the Dead Sea. He completely swept away these cities, just as he did in the flood. He didn't even spare the place where they had sat. He wiped it off the face of the earth. But as we go through and we see, just like in Noah's day, there weren't even 50 righteous in this land. That would have been a very generous estimate. And I think Noah kind of gets the hint that it's a generous estimate. But his question remains, is he going to sweep away the righteous, along with the wicked. When he destroys this place, is he going to destroy the the place where the righteous live? Well, in Numbers 16, uh, verses 19 through actually 24, we see a rebellion under the children, or under Korah, uh, one of the children of Levi. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation, and then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Korah has brought upon themselves judgment for rebelling against Moses in his authority and Aaron in his authority. They're told to separate themselves then from this people whom God has decided and chosen that it is time for them to be destroyed. He is going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And so he warns the righteous people in this congregation to separate themselves so that they're not swept away in the same destruction. He continues and says, But they fell on their faces and said, O God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, this man Korah, will you be angry with the entire congregation? Is God going to judge all of the children of Israel here? Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation saying, get back from around the dwelling of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And what happens here? Most of us hopefully know the story of Korah. The earth itself opens to swallow them up. God is able to destroy them right off the face of the earth using the earth. Israel has this promise to them. It's not really a good promise until you get to the end of cycles of blessing and judgment. They know, and they're told ahead of time that they will go through times where their disobedience will lead to God chastising them, but he will never abandon them. And in the end, he will rescue them. In fact, woven right into the Abrahamic covenant that guarantees their possession of land, seed, and blessing is a promise that they will be separated from the land for 400 years while they undergo enslavement in a land that is not their own. And we see this happen after their massacre at Shechem, where they go to this land where their neighbors live, and they wipe out an entire land of people. And then what is Jacob's response to all this? He says, you've made me odious in the sight of all my neighbors. When they were told to go there and be a blessing, this was their command under this dispensation. Instead, they went and were a tyrant nation. They dealt unjustly. They brought judgment, but not judgment that came from God's will, not judgment that was subject to God's decision and God's choice. But they also made themselves like God, just like Adam and Eve did, in deciding what is right and what is wrong. And so they were sent out of the land for a time. This Exodus generation to whom Moses is writing the book of Genesis Because of a rebellion, they wandered the wilderness for 40 years, and the entire generation that rebelled was wiped out before they were allowed to enter into the land. But there was a remnant. This remnant was the second generation of those Israelites under Caleb and uh, Joshua, who were able to enter into that land with the second generation who had a second chance, a second opportunity, even after the first generation passed a point of no return. Later in the Old Testament, dealing primarily with, or the time dealt with primarily by the prophets, we have the exiled generations. Where Israel is conquered by Assyria and Babylon, Judah is left at first as a remnant while the Northern kingdoms are destroyed. Later, Judah is also conquered and there's a remnant pulled out of Judah. And so we see these two remnants, first Judah, and then Daniel and his crew in uh, Babylon remain as a remnant that God preserves even outside of the nation so that he can someday place them back in the land. Then we have the gospel generation. For some reason, when we come to this gospel generation, we treat it so much differently than the Old Testament. We divorce it from the Old Testament context of cycles of blessing and cursing in which they are cast out of their land for a time while God preserves a remnant that he will bring back into the land. Many theological systems say that somehow this New Testament diaspora is different than the old ones and that they are not coming back or that their return to the land is illegitimate. But God's covenant cannot be illegitimate. God's promises cannot be illegitimate and he will bring them back. But even in this diaspora, after the rejection of the Messiah, who they were required to recognize and receive, God still preserves a remnant called the Israel of God. Those members of the house of Israel who received the Messiah, who trust in him and who would, were they in charge of Israel rather than Israel's leaders. And thrown him as their king and Messiah. Well, that's why I mentioned the book of Hebrews. I know I've mentioned from the pulpit a few times how Hebrews was written to this generation between the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem. You see, because of the rejection of the Messiah, who was long beforehand promised to Israel. Israel that generation just like the generation in the wilderness just like the generation in the exile passed a point of no return passed a point which god's justice demanded be judged and so the city of is or the city of jerusalem was going to be destroyed it was going to be wiped out so much so that not one block would be left upon another However, many of these righteous remnant, the Israel of God, who trusted in the Messiah, who were being persecuted by the Jews who remained in Israel, who remained in Jerusalem, who did not receive this Messiah, caved under pressure and returned to the old Mosaic system, rather than depending on the liberty and grace in the law of Messiah. And so, the book of Hebrews written by an unknown author, warns this group who remained back in Israel just prior to the destruction in AD 70. This book was probably written and delivered to Jerusalem sometime, sometime between 63 and 68 AD. And it warns them, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. But we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Those who are still serving under the Mosaic law system, those who are so occupied with these food laws, uh, not just the food laws offered by Moses in the Torah, but the food laws that were added by the scribes, the Pharisees, these traditions of the elders that they added to the law and corrupted the law with. Because of that corruption of the law, they missed the righteousness of Christ. They missed it. They did not receive it by grace, but tried to earn it themselves. And so these, even after Christ, continued in the Mosaic system because they rejected Christ. And those children of Israel, many generations after Abraham, were told, now it's time for you to flee even from your own city. Because judgment is being brought on it. It says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now, this is a unique and very Jewish kind of argument. They are drawing this connection where these Jews continue, these Christian Jews continue to serve God in the temple rather than having left and abandoned this Mosaic system, which was now completely finished and defunct because Christ had fulfilled and finished it. Continuing in that Mosaic system was a rejection of the finished work of Christ. The author of the book of Hebrews relates it to trampling on the body of Christ or rejecting and refusing the blood of Christ. And so here his argument is, even Jesus suffered outside the city. Even Jesus left Jerusalem for his suffering. So he says, so let us go out to him outside the camp, leave Jerusalem, get out of Jerusalem, bearing his reproach. He was scoffed. He was persecuted. This is the danger that they have in separating from the Mosaic system. Their brothers, the Jews who have rejected Christ, will persecute them. For here we do not have a lasting city. Their city is under condemnation. It will be destroyed. But we are seeking the city which is to come the new Jerusalem. Remember that new Jerusalem, Hebrews told us just two chapters earlier in Hebrews 11, that Abraham was not searching for this city whose foundations was built by man, but the city which has its foundations in heaven, the new Jerusalem that God will deliver, that God has built. Looking quickly into Luke, we see God predicting through his son, Jesus Christ, this destruction of the temple. Now it's important when we look at this Olivet Discourse that we realize that neither Luke nor Matthew include every word that Jesus spoke. Each one of them record what corresponds with their purpose in writing it. These are editors of God's word. They are piecing together the pieces that is necessary for their audience to know. Matthew is trying to prove to this generation of Israel that Jesus truly is the king that was promised and that he is coming with his kingdom. And so he speaks of a future destruction of Jerusalem, a future desecration of Jerusalem by a false Messiah, which will then be destroyed, and Jesus will bring his kingdom in. But Jesus also told us of an immediate destruction of Jerusalem. And so Jesus speaks of two destructions. This one is not a future destruction. This one is a past destruction. This is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 because of the judgment they incurred for rejecting him. So he says, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. Jesus promises them that this sort of persecution that they are suffering in the book of Hebrews is going to come. It is going to happen. Their own brothers and sisters will persecute them. It says, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Guess what? In the book of Hebrews, they had failed that testimony. They were not testifying to the finished work of Christ on the cross. They had returned to their old way, a way that was still looking for a future redemption rather than recognizing the finished work of redemption. It says, but you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. And here is what we don't understand if we don't comprehend the context, because the next phrase would seem to contradict otherwise. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. He says, Some of you are going to be put to death by this Jewish non remnant. But God, in bringing judgment, will not judge a single one of them. Not one hair of their head will perish. Not in God's judgment, though in man's judgment they may. But your endurance, or by your endurance, you will gain your lives. They are enduring to the end, and they are going to save their physical lives. The only reason God is dealing with them in this way is because their eternal destiny is already secure. But he is giving them an opportunity to escape the temporal judgment coming on Jerusalem. Just like God gave Lot the opportunity to escape the temporal judgment coming on Sodom. And so Jesus gives a very specific command. The same command that the book of Hebrews was written to reinforce. Jesus says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. You see, Jerusalem was surrounded by armies twice just prior to AD 70. In AD 68, uh, the uh, Roman Empire was undergoing some convulsions and they tried to sack Jerusalem by surrounding it with the armies under uh, Vespasian. But Vespasian failed to produce the supply line necessary to hold off or to hold this siege on Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem was surrounded, and then they retreated. And within a year, Titus brought another army to siege Jerusalem. They had a brief window in which to be faithful to God's command to flee the city. Lot had a single day to flee the city. Jesus speaks to this generation of Israel as if they have a single day. As soon as you see Jerusalem surrounded, get out. It is going to be destroyed. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. Those who are in the country must not enter the city because these are the days of vengeance so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. This is God's wrath that we are speaking of here. They will fall by the edge of the sword, and they will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This occurred in AD 70. A similar destruction still remains in the future, patterned by this one. But in that future one, the Antichrist, the false Messiah, will enter into the temple itself and desecrate the temple and call himself God. When they see this, they are to flee just like they did in the first century. They are to get out and God will preserve them. He will bring them to the city of Petra and preserve them for three and a half years. You see, God is training Abraham about righteousness and justice because Israel through every generation is going to need to understand it. Through every generation, they are going to need to be faithful to God, and every generation is going to have the opportunity to be faithful. But there is a generation coming in the future to whom God will offer the kingdom, and they will be faithful. They will receive the Messiah. There, in that tribulation generation, after two millennia of Israel in unbelief, Israel will be converted to faith in the Messiah. Through the remnant of 144,000 faithful Jews. Their remnant will increase to multitudes. It will probably be one of the greatest revivals that history has ever seen, all because of a faithful remnant which preaches the gospel of the kingdom. Romans 11 promises, promises us as well that that diaspora in the first century of, uh, after Christ that that generation of Israel was not the end of Israel. That was not the end of God's dealing with Israel. But he has a future plan, and that future plan requires this remnant of God. Romans eleven two. Paul writes, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. There's no way to be more clear about that. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? This is the opposite of an intercessory prayer that Elijah prays, also based on the integrity of God. God, they have broken your law, judge them. But what does God say? Well, he says, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to it? In other words, what does God reply to Elijah? when Elijah says, I'm the only one left here, he says, I have not, or I have kept for myself 7,000 men whom have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 remained in that remnant during the, uh, or just prior to the exile. And so Romans eleven five. in the same way, then there has also come to be at the present time, first century, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Just as God chose Abraham for a purpose and in every generation has chosen Israel for a purpose, so the present remnant that exists in the church age exists for a purpose. The church will never be absent of Jewish persons. It began as a Jewish body. Gentiles were grafted into it, but it has not become a Gentile body, even if Gentiles are overwhelmingly in the majority. This belongs to Israel because This is how God is preserving a remnant on this earth. Because it is Israel's responsibility, not the church's responsibility, to bring in the Messiah, to call him back to earth, where he might rule over all of the earth. And so here, Abraham, in the same way as future generations will do, pleads God's character, pleads God's integrity. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing. Abraham says, this is not my understanding of your character. To sweep away the righteous along with the wicked. To slay the righteous with the wicked. So that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. God, you don't treat your people the same way you treat the people who are your enemies. He's offering them grace. He offers his enemies grace too. But here God is going to go the extra mile to preserve his people. He repeats himself again, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? See, Abraham does have a comprehension of justice, of God's justice as the standard. And how can God separate himself from his own standard? He is the measure. How can he act against his own character? He cannot. And so what Abraham has come to understand about God, through intimacy of knowing God, We remember when we studied 1 John together, many times John appeals to our knowledge of God and that this knowledge is not just a general knowledge of his existing, but because we have come to know him personally and intimately, we understand who he is. We can predict his movements because we've seen them. Abraham has seen God's movements and sweeping away the righteous along with the justice does not correspond with what he has seen of this God. He has seen this God act over and above graciously and mercifully to him when he deserves judgment. But God offers grace, God preserves him. This is a lot like the question that uh, God Himself poses to Sarah when Sarah doesn't believe what God says about the coming seed. He says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Is anything so miraculous for the Lord? The answer is obvious. No, it's not. No, this is not part of God's character to sweep away the righteous along with the wicked. In fact, we see this in Moses' generation as well. This sort of event occurs twice once at the beginning of their exodus journey and once after 10 times of rebelling again. And God finally says, this is the point of no return. But here in Exodus 32, we have Moses still on Mount Sinai receiving the law. And he's come down to see that Israel has turned all of the gold and riches that they pulled out of Egypt into a golden calf. And they've begun to worship this and to say that this is the God that brought them out. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and he said, go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And so the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Moses pleads on Israel's behalf, but notice how he does it. He does not say, just pass over the sin, don't look at this one, uh, give us another chance. No, he appeals to God's integrity. He says, then Moses entreated the Lord, his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth. When the rest of the earth looks at God's failure to establish Israel in the land, what are they going to say? we can extrapolate this to god's entire program on earth if he fails with israel all of the nations would look on him and say why has he brought that why has he brought evil upon them is he not strong enough to defeat the enemy when we look at the failure in the garden of adam is this not or is god not able to rescue this earth from Adam's failure. If he's going to work through Israel to establish them over the nations, so that he might bring his Messiah in and establish him over the entire creation, if he fails to do this, the nations would rightly look on God and say he is no God at all. God is able to do it. But Moses appeals to God here and says, turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob, your servants whom you swore by yourself. He swore on his own integrity. Remember, as we went through Genesis 15, we saw that God applies the covenant to his own character, not to Abraham's character. And he said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and all this land of which I have spoken. I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people because God has integrity. Our integrity should reflect his, not in having our own internal integrity, but in having his integrity put on us. So we see that when he, by his own word has made a promise to Israel and to this people, he cannot change his mind and go against his own integrity. Moses appeals to God in his unchanging nature, in his generous and caring nature. But Israel will at some point reach a point of no return, by which God has to judge, though he will still be faithful to this promise and not remove the promises of Israel from all of Israel. He says, then I will spare the whole place on the account of this 50 Moses digs in a little deeper now. He is going to probe God's integrity. He's tested his character. He's seen that it is righteous. And now Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Abraham recognizes his place. He maintains his humility before God. He is not imposing his will over God's, but he is appealing to God's will. He says, suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Now, keep this in the back of your minds. Abraham just asked about the low number of five. Abraham has his answer here. Is God going to destroy the city because of five? He's going to whittle it down, 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 not because he doesn't have an answer for these, but because he is going to be probing God's integrity, testing him at every point, not to see if he can catch God in some error, but so that he can understand God all the better. Now, I've gone to this passage before to show that God is patient with his people in prayer, and it is a good place to go to show that God is patient. But how about going to this passage to show how inquisitive we should be of God and his character, testing at every point to see who he is and what he will do and how he will react. We have the perfect record of his scripture. And do we go to it as intently and repetitively here as, mo- or as Abraham goes to God himself? He is testing everything here because he wants to know it as well as he possibly can. He wants to understand everything that he has, the ability to understand about God. And so he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Now, remember in 1 John, towards the end of that book, we had this very interesting passage. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing sin, uh, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death and I do not say he should make a request for this. Now, hopefully this will come into better light as we see how this process of intercession works. Abraham is appealing to God's integrity on behalf of his brother, his nephew here, but he is a brother in the one true God in the sense that they are both part of this family of God. And he is pleading on behalf of Lot. Now, we don't know whether or not someone has passed the point of no return where God is going to bring maximum judgment on them so that he might even take their physical life. And so we ought to pray for all of our brothers, but our prayer should never be, God, if you've decided that this person has passed a point of no return, I pray that you would give him life instead. But rather, Lord, if it is in accordance with your will, spare this person from this judgment. That happens 10 times in the wilderness, where Moses is able to plead on Israel's behalf. Because it accords with God's will, he doesn't bring terminal judgment. But at a certain point, on the 10th time that they grumble against the Lord, finally God does bring maximum judgment. Israel, after 10 times of rebelling against the Lord, finally passed that point of no return and sinned a sin leading to death. Because that's the punishment God just has to bring. This people will not be broken so that they would be obedient. He's going to give the second generation a try instead. It says, all of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Let's throw off Moses, God's chosen leader, and pick a different one for ourselves. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes. They spoke to all the congregations of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to spy out is exceedingly good land. Their assessment of the land does not correspond with God's, and that's an issue. God said it's good. They should trust him. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Their exhortation to the children of Israel is, Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them. Israel's has not. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. What's happening right here is the same as God going down to judge Sodom. He is about to bring maximum judgment on this people. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I've performed in their midst? The answer to this how long, how long, how long will be just about every single generation for the rest of world history. But God is faithful to them where they are not faithful to him. So he says, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. And I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. This is the second time he offers this to Moses, where he says, I will throw off my own integrity and make you. This, this would be very tempting to Moses if he were concerned with his own integrity rather than with God's or with his own glory rather than God's. But Moses said to the Lord, now, if you slay this people as one man, remember the rebellion of Korah, actually the rebellion of Korah has not yet happened at this point, but he says, if you slay the people as if they were one man, not separating, not making a division rightly, then the nations who have heard you or have heard of your name will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land, which he promised to them by an oath, In other words, the rest of the world is going to see God and say, this is not a God who is trustworthy, and this is not a God who is powerful. If God is not able to overcome the stiff-neckedness of these people, the rebellion of these people, he says, therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. God couldn't do it, so he just wiped them out. This would be the assessment of the world, right or wrong. But now I pray is interceding on their behalf. Let the power of the Lord be great, just as you declared. In other words, God, show them your power by not slaying them in the wilderness. The Lord is slow to anger. He's reminding him of his own character and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, not looking over it, forgiving it. And he will by no means clear the guilty. Moses also understands God's justice, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. And so he says, surely all the men who have seen the glory, my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these times and have not listened to my voice. They shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers. In other words, God is not judging the entire nation as one man. He is judging them as two men, one generation and the next generation. And he will do this countless times through the history of Israel. He judges the one generation and assesses that they have passed a point of no return. They will not receive the experience of the blessings that belong to them because they have failed to be faithful to God. So nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. That goes down to the individual level. Each individual who spurned God will not see it. You see, he's able to dissect, even from that first generation, those who did remain faithful, which were Caleb and Joshua. And he assesses why they, in their entire generation, are the only ones who get to go in. Because he, Caleb, has had a different spirit and has followed me fully. I will bring into the land which he, him into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. And so the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, just as God had heard the complaints of Sodom and Gomorrah, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. In other words, they said, God brought us out here to leave us in the wilderness, to let us die out here. He brought us out here so that our children would die in the wilderness. I think that's part of the reason why Moses is about to include in the book of Genesis, we'll get there soon, how God did not let Hagar and Ishmael die in the wilderness. But here he says, the things you accused me of doing, I am going to do to you now. I was not going to, now I am. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Japuna and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected." But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. God knows how to rescue the righteous and how to keep the unrighteous in chains. Lastly here, we have very quickly just a few more questions from Abraham, and they all follow the same pattern. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. And then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. The idea being only once more. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. Now, why does he stop at 10? Why doesn't he go down to 5, down to 1? There's a few different reasons why the best in reason is we can't know for sure scripture doesn't tell us and we can't know things for sure that scripture does not tell us but we have some hints and we have some ideas and there have been some good suggestions and some bad ones throughout one is that there were uh 10 members of lot's family abraham assumed that all 10 being righteous would be rescued by the lord there is lot his wife two sons four daughters and two sons-in-law by some estimations. Uh, Interestingly, and we'll get to this when we get to chapter 19, it's kind of hard to tell just how many kids Lot had, uh, but this is one possible explanation. Notice here, now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with men, two virgin daughters. Then uh, two men said to Lot, whom else have you here? He says, a son-in-law, your sons, and your daughters. And whomever you have in the city, bring them out to this place. So the angels assess they have at least one son-in-law, meaning they have one married daughter. They have two sons in the plural, and your daughters, the virgin ones. Then uh, we have sons-in-law. So now there's two sons-in-law. Uh, Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, which also means two married daughters his daughters, and said, get up out of the place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Now, we'll deal with that more later. It's really hard to tell just how many kids Lot had. The other option is, at this point, Abraham is counting down by tens. To count down by another ten would be to ask of zero, which would kind of be ridiculous. Why would God spare this city if there are zero righteous in it? The other answer is he already has an answer for whether or not God will destroy it for five. This was his second question. He went from 50 to five. The result of that was 45. Also, he was counting down by fives and then switched to counting down by tens. Well, here's the other one. And this one I think is has the least support because Abraham did not appear to know how many people in the end would flee from Sodom, but only four would flee from Sodom. And so we know that God wouldn't spare the city on account of four. But as well, God did not spare the whole world for less than 10 because only eight persons were on the ark. So if God wouldn't spare the entire world of so much more significance because of the righteousness of 10, why would he spare this city of so much less significance because of fewer than 10? I think the best answer is that Abraham was using this to learn, and he learned what he needed to learn from God. He learned about the consistency of God's integrity, the consistency of God's righteousness, justice, and mercy, that God is going to be consistent from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. God never changes. But God is able to rescue out of the city that deserves judgment so that no, none who chose to accept this gracious flight uh, by the aid of these angels Failed to receive it. All right. Lastly, verse 33. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. Now remember, God had said that I am going down now to bring judgment to Sodom. And then Abraham catches his ear and asks these questions. While the angels are down in Sodom, pleading with Lot and his family to leave. And it's at this point then that the Lord departs. His purpose for departing, remember, had been that he would bring judgment to Sodom. And so when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. This is how God departed from Abraham in the last chapter. Specifically, we're told that he ascended. Here, we're not told that he ascended. When in 1821, God had said that he was going to Sodom, he says, I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry. This is closest in the context. God's statement that he is going to leave last said that he is going to go down. He is going down for the purpose of judgment, just as he went down for the purpose of judgment in Babel. Here, God, when he departs from Abraham, is going to bring judgment on Sodom. And that's what we see in the entire chapter of Genesis 19. That We will begin next week. But here in conclusion, we remember uh, the main point of this passage is that God takes the opportunity of timely judgment on Sodom to instruct Abraham concerning righteousness, justice, and mercy. Abraham, as the seminal head of a new nation, was given an example of extreme national judgment made possible by the perforation of nations at Babel. God will exterminate nations which oppose him on earth. But Abraham takes the opportunity to learn about God's character and to test the doctrine of a faithful remnant. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your consistency. We thank you that you have revealed yourself in your word so that we can know you intimately, so that we can know your movements and we can know your actions. We can know how you would make decisions in certain scenarios. We thank you that you have trusted us with this responsibility of reflecting you here on this earth. We pray that we might be faithful enough to study your word so that we can understand uh, your righteousness, your justice, and your mercy. We do praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.